This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. All right, everyone. Well, welcome on this most lovely and promising of springish days. <clears throat> you know, I hope uh, everybody got a chance to be outside at least for a little while today. Um, this is our second to last lecture of this winter term here at Labrie, and we have one more to look forward to next week, which will be with uh, Miss Esther Dalton, addressing the topic the monster in the closet, facing the question of what to wear. I've been eagerly anticipating this one all term myself and facing the monster daily these days. So um, we will look forward to welcoming you back for that. And then we'll take a break for several weeks until May when we'll start up our lectures again with the spring-summer term. Um, tonight, we are asking the question, can we be at home in the shadow of the fall? We'll be reflecting on home with the help of poets. So I'd like to begin with prayer. So if you'll just join me in prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, I do invite you to uh, be present here in our midst, and would you um, give us ears to hear your voice and uh, hearts that are responsive to uh, your prompting. I pray that um, good words, words that can nourish and words that can inspire um, would be heard tonight. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, um, as it so happens, I think a lot about home. Not only do we work from home here at Labrie, in a sense, home is our work. Before Labrie is anything, it is a home, at least to the chestnuts the Fiori Kais, to Esther, to Kelly. Before we sit down to talk ideas or recommend books or lectures or share a meal even, we literally open uh, the red front door or the green front door and we welcome you, strangers at first, to be in some sense, at home while you are here with us. This is the work of hospitality in the biblical sense, the welcome of stranger. Uh, And it is a beautiful work. 
I'm deeply convinced of that, but it is not an uncomplicated work, and it's not without its ugliness. Back in 2020, we had planned a branch-wide sabbatical for May through August. Joshua and I had so many great travel plans for our family, and in fact, at that point, the rest that we were hoping for in a sabbatical depended heavily on getting away from home. And then, as you know, March of 2020 brought with it the COVID-19 pandemic, lockdowns, travel restrictions, and most of our travel plans, though not all, for which I'm very thankful, uh, were thwarted. We experienced a tremendous degree of frustration, loss, feelings of now what? How are we going to rest? And out of that, the sense that God's invitation was to embrace our sabbatical as a time of learning how to rest at home. What a novel idea. This, we learned, was really the deeper need that we had from sabbatical. Not only the rejuvenation and the perspective shift that only time away can give, and I'm really thankful for the away that we did have, but the need to learn how to be at home in a new and more rest-centered, which is to say Christ-centered way um, was real for us. And we are not, of course, the only ones who have been renegotiating home and work and the meaning and the make of home and the meaning and the make of work through the pandemic. We all have been doing that. And yesterday, as I sat down to continue working on this lecture, I read a report uh, from the Associated Press in the New York Times on the Russian siege of the city of uh, Mariupol that just moved me to tears. Two years ago, on Good Friday, I wept over the news and the images of mass graves dug on New York's Hart Island for COVID-19 victims. And now, two years later, news and images of another mass grave, a narrow trench being filled with the bodies of civilians, many of them children, because Vladimir Putin believes that this land is homeland, is the place or origin and therefore right of the Rus. These sentences from the article uh, just jarred me. Just weeks ago, Mariupol's future seemed much brighter. If geography drives a city's destiny, Mariupol was on the path to success with its thriving iron and steel plants, a deep water port, and high global demand for both. 
just weeks ago. And then, homes, hope, future, totally turned upside down, and mere survival, completely uncertain. I want to open our evening with a poem that I won't comment on at length, but when I first started reading through this book, which I'll tell you more about in a minute, it's called Home, 100 Poems. Um, I read this in January, and it moved me then. And then in light of the last few weeks' events, uh, it moves me all the more. And it's called If China, and not China the country, but the dishes. It's by a Polish poet named Stanislaw Baranzak. If China, then only the kind you wouldn't miss under the mover's shoes or the treads of a tank. If a chair, then one that's not too comfortable, or you'll regret getting up and leaving. If clothes, then only what will fit in one suitcase. If books, then those you know by heart. If plans, then the ones you can give up when it comes time for the next move, to another street, another continent, or epoch, or world. Who told you you could settle in? Who told you this or that would last forever? Didn't anyone tell you you'll never in the world feel at home here? Can we ever in the whole world feel at home here? Tonight we're asking, can we be at home in the shadow of the fall? And I believe that individually and universally for humans, this question is as urgent as ever. So here's the roadmap for the evening. Um, I'll just say I always find it helpful when a lecturer clues you in Mm -hmm. on not only the outline, kind of the the structure of a talk, but like how am I supposed to listen to this? Because when I read a text, I read that differently than I read a novel, and I read a news article differently than I read a letter from my mother. And, you know, so lectures are different like that. So, so listen, um, listen for the layers that build up in this lecture. Um, it's not going to be sort of like a nice straight linear argumentation. <laughs> um, there's going to be a layering of ideas and images. Um, that I think will yield um, meaning for us. 
there is a structure. So first, I want to just spend a good bit of time framing um, our coming consideration of a few poems. Um, I want to look at really the elements of the, the title of this lecture. First, why look to poets on this matter? Or for, you know, that matter, any other matter. Why look to poets? And then I want to address the question, what are we talking about when we say in the shadow of the fall? And then in a a briefer um, sense, what might it mean to be or to feel at home? We're really going to get into that with the poems. So that will be the first big section. And then I want to offer you um, a way to engage and be engaged by the poems that we'll hear. And then we'll look at three poems, and then we'll have some open discussion. So, why look to poets? Well, two reasons come to mind immediately um, for me. The first um, comes from a, just a couple comments that poets and literary critics have made. W.H. Auden, a poet, said that poetry is a clear expression of mixed feelings. And if you have mixed feelings about most things, and especially home and the meaning of home, then you are most certainly a human being. We need help navigating our feelings. Some of us need help feeling our feelings in the first place and not just thinking our way around them. And some of us need help not being utterly mired in our feelings and pulled down by them as if we were in quicksand. Words, while not the only way to express our feelings and our thoughts, are the primary way and a way unique to humans to do this. And the right words, as in words that are truly adequate to the task, can go a long way to both help us feel our feelings and to help feelings loosen their grip. On us. Additionally, the literary critic R.P. Blackmuir said, poetry increases the stock of available reality, which I understand to mean poems not only adequately and clearly express mixed feelings, which is bearing witness to our experiences, but they themselves are something real to experience, something that truly adds to our lives and our way of inhabiting the world. They're not ephemeral, abstract, or merely ornamental, a little embellishment or a flourish. A poem, like a song, like a painting, like just the right mug, is truly a necessary companion in life. And 
I'll just say, as a kind of a brief aside, if you're sort of like poetry, prose, verse, like what's the difference? Um, when he says poetry increases the stock of available reality, he's not talking about the verse that Hallmark cards are written in. If you've had the experience of standing in the card aisle for way longer than you think it should take to find a card that adequately adequately expresses what you want to say, I think you're experiencing not finding a poem. (laughs) you're, You're experiencing the frustration of like, these words aren't adequate to the task, actually. Um, but words that are, um, are, are truly substantial and a thing in themselves to um, enrich and be present in our lives. So that's the first reason to turn to poets. Poems can give us the gift of a clear or a clearer expression of mixed feelings, And poems themselves add something to our lives. In other words, I hope that we leave tonight richer, not only because we can think more clearly about the meaning and the complexity of home, but also because we've encountered something solid, something real and true and beautiful in these poems, and they themselves have been added to the stock of our lives. The second reason is uh, it so happens that one of my favorite contemporary poets, Christian Wyman, who teaches at Yale Divinity School, completed his latest book project, Home, 100 Poems, entirely during these last two years of pandemic lockdown. Home Uh, And its predecessor, volume Joy, 100 Poems, are really masterfully curated anthologies of modern poems that explore the idea and the meaning, the experience of their title. So in this case, Home. The voices that Wyman includes are truly diverse, racially Ethnically, linguistically, many of the poems, the one I read just a bit ago and another that we'll look at tonight, are in translation. And the collection reaches across gender lines. The voices speak out of a variety of faith traditions, as well as the tradition of no faith, poets who would describe themselves as atheists. Unlike other poetry anthologies, Wyman includes prose interludes among and between the poems. Sometimes the prose fragments respond or react to the poems that they are beside, and sometimes a prose selection comes from the very poet that we've just read. Sometimes the poem and the prose lay beside each other bearing conflicting witness or bearing amplified witness in their agreement with one another. As with his volume, Joy, Wyman opens this collection 
with an essay that lets the reader in on his own discovery of the meaningfulness of the word home as it has emerged through this editorial process. He notes right at the start, in joy, a long and wide-ranging search led me to an increasingly focused sense of what the word might mean. With home, a similar search has caused the governing word to disperse into more definitions than one book can contain. This frustrated me for a while. A word that means everything, home is a house, a country, a language, a love, a longing, a grief, a god, means nothing. Gradually, though, I have found the linguistic slippage provocative. A word whose meanings are so various and contradictory means something is deeply and still at stake. A certain circularity is to be expected and not embraced either, but endured. Something is deeply and still at stake. A certain circularity is to be expected and not embraced, but endured. I want you to hold on to those thoughts and hold them next to this question we're asking. Can we be at home in the shadow of the fall? What are we talking about when we say in the shadow of the fall? This question, can we be at home in the shadow of the fall, contains an assumption, a prior conviction as a starting point, the fall. In the shadow of the fall has become Labrie's shorthand for referring to all of the ways that we experience the world, our relationships, our own bodies and psychologies, and even our relationship with God as precisely not homey. The fall refers to original sin, original disobedience, the origin of things gone wrong in the world. The shadow of the fall is what is described in Genesis 3, the curse, the consequences of trading the truth of God for a lie. And what was the lie? It was Satan's lie. You will not surely die. In other words, God isn't really the only source of life. The shadow of the fall are all the ways we experience ourselves and others as as very much unlike God. We are made in the image of God, which graciously we retain, um, but it is not untarnished. 
Now deceit, hiding, blame shifting, disintegration, inflicting suffering on others, tolerating the suffering of others, frustration, disease, decay, death, all all of that characterizes human life. The reality of the fall and its long-reaching shadow is a central teaching of the Bible. And in fact, the Bible's shorthand for the fall and all of its consequences is exile. What is the human condition? Exile. Adam and Eve were banished. They were exiled from the Garden of Eden. This exile is so complete that much later in the biblical story, uh, we see that even a return to a homeland, when the Israelites were exiled into Babylon and then get to return, even that return does not lead to an at-homeness and an everything's okay now. When humans speak of home, when we long to feel at home, we're touching on this existential homelessness that a building or a land alone or a person or a people alone or even a private mystical experience with God alone cannot fulfill. The shadow of the fall, this universal human condition of exile, has appropriately become one of the five themes of Labrie, which is to say it's one of the major topics that we find ourselves returning to again and again and again because it's so critical to get it right and it's so often got wrong. Perhaps you're thinking, I get it, the fall, humans did, humans do things their own way, not God's way, it's a mess, the mess persists. All right, I'd ask you to pause and consider if, as Dick points out in his lecture, Living in the Shadow of the Fall, there's many versions of it on our database. (laughs) It's been given many times over the years, I think. So you can look that up if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, I would invite you to consider, do you ever find yourself thinking or saying perhaps with deep longing or perhaps with a tone of defeat, if only then, if only there weren't so many briars and brambles, then I'd clear the sunken garden. (laughs) If only I were smarter, then... I would know for sure that people all like me at Labrie. (laughs) If only I were funnier or more attractive or just better generally, then I'd get the job, I'd find the spouse, I'd be happy. If only other people weren't so arrogant or boring or distracted or self-absorbed, then I'd have a real friend. If only God would speak to me, and reveal his power, if only God would give me what I've been asking for all these years, then I would believe in him. If only, fill in the blank, 
then, fill in the blank, thinking and talking reveals that we should at least consider the possibility that we have unfallen expectations of a fallen world. And if these expectations go unchecked, we are likely to experience life and others and ourselves and church and God himself as utterly frustrating and disillusioning. So consider how this theme takes up residence in our desire for and our pursuit of home or a feeling at home. If only I had a place I was really from, then I'd feel at ease in the world. Then I'd know who I am. Then I'd know how to answer that darn question that people always start conversations with. Where are you from? If only the home of my childhood hadn't been such a sad, angry, volatile place, then I wouldn't have all these problems. Think, too, of how the home decorating industry capitalizes on this, capitalizes on the commercialization of home. If only our home looks like an Ikea catalog, then I'd really feel at peace. If only I had my own place, a she shed or a man cave or Ben's tree house, (laughs) then I'd feel less stressed out I'd be more creative, I'd be happy. If only I had another window in this room, if only I could afford to redecorate, then I'd, then I'd invite people over. Do you ever hear yourself using if only, then language in how you talk to yourself or to others? If you find yourself tangling with if only, then thinking, and we all do, consider the possibility that you're tangling with the shadow of the fall. You are ill at ease. You are not at home in the human condition of exile. Well, that's good because you shouldn't be. And I'm not advocating a stoic or a cynical stance that expects and is unfazed by trial and hardship, nor am I advocating a shallow take on God's sovereignty that responds to real loss and grief with a glib and destructive and not to mention false, well, this must be God's will for my life or for your life. Chin up. I am advocating for a sober reckoning with our own expectations of the world that we live in and a deep and ongoing accounting of what we think will save us from our state of exile. So, what are we talking about when we talk about being at home. We're already getting at it a bit. Um, What might it mean to be at home? What does it or what would it feel like to be at home, especially if we take the shadow of the fall seriously? 
So this isn't a rhetorical question. I'm inviting your just off-the-cuff responses. What would you expect to find in the poems in a collection called Home? Rest. Rest. Comfort. Family meals. Family meals. Relationships. Relationships. Or experience of lack of home. <laughs> the experience yeah. of lack of home. Loneliness. Yeah. <laughs> Marriage. Divorce. Death. Are all these the positive things? Because for some people, it's the opposite of all these things that have been mentioned. Exactly. Yeah. So this is what... Yeah, I. everybody's on the right track. <laughs> it is such a mixed bag, right? In this book, just among, among much more, marriage, divorce, death of a child, a parent, a spouse, volatile home life, political exile, slavery and its aftermath, immigration, Love-making of the long-married, domestic violence, drastic change of the neighborhood of one's childhood, housewarming, house-cooling, demolition, gentrification, cultivated land, wilderness, Drainage pipes, paper clips, pills, plants, piano scales, baseball pajamas, crayons, piles of possessions, mournful expressions, clean towels, a warm comforter, glass figurines. The word home, Wyman says, kept dispersing as if the word itself was in exile. Something is deeply and still at stake. What? A certain circularity is to be expected and not embraced but endured. Why? What's at stake? Why endure and not just embrace this as, well, it's the way it is? These are the questions I want in the back of our mind, and we'll come back to this by the end. Because my hunch is that what's at stake and why we endure but do not embrace are tied up in the relationship between home, the home we can know now, and hope, the home that we hope for. (coughs) So, how do I read a poem? Um, I know uh, for lots of people, trying to read a poem feels like being in a dark and unfamiliar room and you're groping around for a light switch. And where is it? Help! So I want to just try to give us some tools. In Joy, his first anthology, Wyman wrote 
of turning to palms because they do not so much as help him think through the meaning of joy as undergo it. Kelly shared another quote from Joy at our Monday prayer meeting. To experience joy is to experience being seized. He turned to palms to probe the meaning of joy by finding palms that seized him and joyed him. For home, he turned to palms again, not so much to think through as to enter in and inhabit the the poems and the meaning of home through the poems. To receive the hospitality, if you will, that each poem offered. So that's the idea I want to try tonight. What if we start by assuming that we're actually welcome into each poem? That the speaker is not, it turns out, hostile, but hospitable to us. So, a few things to consider. How do I get into the poem? Well, you start with the door, the title. Enter through the door of the title. If a title is doing its work, it's, it's going to open up the poem for you. You might need to go back after reading it once and read it again. But the title is a doorway. Then ask, who's here to meet me? This is a question about who is the speaker of the poem. And it may or may not be the poet. And then you uh, meet someone, might have a conversation. What are we going to talk about in this poem? This is a question of the subject of the poem. This is the what's it about question. And um, there might you might be um, privy to a conversation that's already going on. Maybe um, there's the poet or the speaker in the poem is talking to himself or herself. Maybe they're talking to God. Or maybe you're drawn into a conversation in this poem. Consider what silence does in the poem. And what kind of response is evoked in you? What Questions do you want to ask of this poem? And then finally, um, we'll ask, what does this poem have to say about the meaning of home? Okay. What you will not find in this anthology are poems of, in Wyman's words, direct uncomplicated domestic fulfillment. And for that, I thank God, and I thank Christian Wyman, because domestic fulfillment is not direct, nor is it uncomplicated. I want to begin, however, with a poem that may come close to this. I first came across this poem 14 or 15 years ago when a married friend shared it with me before I was married. 
The title is, and you can find this on your handout, After Making Love, We Hear Footsteps. So maybe facing this door, this title, you can imagine something of what might be coming. I remember feeling a bit embarrassed by this poem, so I'm sorry if this is embarrassing to anybody. (laughs) But this is Labrie, and we make a point of not being squeamish about having conversations about things like sex that can often be taboo in religious circles. If it matters to you, and I don't know anyone for whom sex doesn't matter, it's worth talking about. <clears throat> so what I'd like to do for these three poems, I will read them um, for us. I will offer some of my own observations in those kind of three categories, the, the doorway of the title, what's the speaker like that we encounter, what's the conversation, what are we talking about, what does this have to say about home? And then I'm going to just move through them, and then we'll open it up for discussion, and we can come back to any of the poems um, in in the discussion. But it's a bit of a, a progression that I want us to experience together. So the doorway of this poem, After Making Love, We Hear Footsteps, clearly there's a multi-layered encounter coming There is a presumably unwelcome or at least unexpected intruder after making love. And if that doesn't pique your curiosity, then I don't know what will. (laughs) After making love, we hear footsteps by Galway Canal. For I can snore like a bullhorn, or play loud music, or sit up talking with any reasonably sober Irishman, and Fergus will only sink deeper into his dreamless sleep, which goes by all in one flash. But let there be that heavy breathing, or a stifled come cry anywhere in the house and he will wrench himself awake and make for it on the run. As now, we lie together after making love, quiet, touching along the length of our bodies, familiar touch of the long married, and he appears In his baseball pajamas, it happens. The neck opening so small he has to screw them on and flops down between us and hugs us and snuggles himself to sleep, his face gleaming with satisfaction at being this very child. In the half-darkness, we look at each other and smile and touch arms across this little, startlingly muscled body, this one whom habit of memory propels to the ground of his making, sleeper 
Only the mortal sounds can sing awake. This blessing love gives again into our arms. His face gleaming with satisfaction at being this very child. Right there, wedged between his parents, whose love gave rise to his existence, this particular child, Fergus, the one with the baseball jammies. Well, who's the speaker that we encounter? The speaker is clearly one of the we in the after making love, we hear footsteps. And he's someone with a sense of humor. Bullhorn, reasonably sober Irishman. And one whose humor extends into his own sex life with his wife. How amazing is that? The mildly exasperated tone at the start of this poem and the sense that this is definitely not the first time that Fergus has come running uh, make Wyman's earlier point. Domestic fulfillment, sexual fulfillment, is not direct or uncomplicated. In fact, it requires a sense of humor. What does this poem invite us into a conversation about? Well, sex. And not the sex of Hollywood movies or of one-night stands or of car or candy bar advertisements, but the lovemaking of the long married. In fact, that Fergus comes running at the sounds of sex is maybe a bit ironic and clearly frustrating, but maybe there's a beauty to this, a little counterpoint with the way that his parents probably respond quickly and come running to his cries in the night. And what does this poem have to say about home? I think this just speaks beautifully about belonging. Satisfaction at being this very child. Flopped down, snuggled in between his parents. Contentment can only come through delight in the particular. And the physical not the ideal or the abstract. We're going to make a pretty hard turn for the next poem, which is on the flip side, uh, oriented kind of long ways on your paper. Um, I think when I made your copies, I accidentally cut off the poet's name. This poem is by Ilya Kaminsky, 
He's Ukrainian-born um, from Odessa and moved to the U.S. as a child with his family. Um, he's quite a celebrated poet. And I'll just jump right into this poem now. The doorway, the title of this poem, In a Time of Peace, which you would be uh, wise to know immediately suggests its inverse, in a time of war. So let's hear this poem. In a Time of Peace. Inhabitant of earth for 40-something years, I once found myself in a peaceful country. I watch neighbors open their phones to watch a cop demanding a man's driver's license. When the man reaches for his wallet, the cop shoots into the car window, shoots. It is a peaceful country. We pocket our phones and go to the dentist, pick up the kids from school to buy shampoo and basil. Ours is a country in which a boy shot by police lies on the pavement for hours. We see in his open mouth the nakedness of the whole nation. We watch, watch others watch. The body of a boy lies on the pavement exactly like the body of a boy. It is a peaceful country. And it clips our citizens' bodies effortlessly, the way the president's wife trims her toenails. All of us still have to do the hard work of dentist appointments, of remembering to make a summer salad, basil, tomatoes. It is a joy, tomatoes. Add a little salt. This is a time of peace. I do not hear gunshots, but watch birds splash over the backyards of the suburbs. How bright is the sky as the avenue spins on its axis? How bright is the sky? Forgive me. How bright. So, the speaker of this poem identifies himself as a 40-something-year-old inhabitant of Earth, which is a broader claim and identifier than any certain nationality. And the phrase, I once found myself, has a distancing sort of almost out-of-body feel. 
And I think it gives the sense straight off the bat that there's something a bit surreal afoot. And as the poem progresses, there's a growing sense of irony. And then by the time we get to the lines and it clips its citizens' bodies effortlessly, the way the president's wife trims her toenails, there is sharp critique. And yet, the speaker never stands apart from the us or the we, but remains implicated. And even by the last line, apologetic or penitential, forgive me. What kind of conversation is this poem drawing us into? Well, by the seventh line, we know we are interrogating the truth of the refrain. It is a peaceful country. Is it? Ours is a country in which a boy shot by police lies on the pavement for hours. The body of a boy lies on the pavement exactly like the body of a boy. This poem is one of dissonant juxtapositions. Police shooting, a summer salad, birds in the backyard of the suburbs, a boy dead on the pavement, a bright sky, how bright. So what does this poem say of home. All of us still have the hard work of dentist appointments, of remembering to make a summer salad. Is this ironic or is it completely sincere? Or is it somehow both? What is lost in the failure to remember to make a summer salad and add salt to the tomatoes? Certainly a pleasure, a a joy even, is lost. And when a joy is lost, then what? Is that a further indication of an insidious numbness and indifference to the horrific as well as to the beautiful? I think yes. I think Kaminsky is saying yes. In a very real way, it is an affront to the suffering of others when we fail to appreciate the goodness the real peace in our own lives. And equally, it's an affront to the suffering of others to turn a blind eye to pain and injustice and carry on blithely with a corrosive sense of entitlement. The forgive me is an acknowledgement of the incongruity of these realities, 
watching the birds splash over suburban backyards and watching and watching others watch the body of a boy lie on the pavement exactly like the body of a boy. And it is also an acknowledgement that we are all, all of us, held responsible And this gets us even closer to this nub of the human condition, the pervasive present exile inside us and outside us. Wyman asks this question. Oh, sorry, I thought I had that. What is the right relationship of security to precarity. I have this one here. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. What is the right relationship of security to precarity between those who have literal homes and those who don't? How should the man or woman sitting in the sunlit backyard sipping gin and watching the children play relate to the Syrian child photographed, bloated, and face down on a beach in Turkey? Or to the half million U.S. citizens who on any given night are homeless? Or to George Floyd? Brianna Taylor, Stefan Clark, Philandro Castile, Tamara Rice, Michael Brown, Eric Garner. And Wyman notes how insidious the etc. one is forced into at some point. What is the right relationship of security to precarity? Our third poem has an answer to this question. Can I ask a question before you move on to the next mm-hmm. one? What do you make of the last line? How bright is the sky, forgive me. How bright. To forgive me. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. How do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that as this like difficult juxtaposition of delighting in a moment of beauty and light and brightness, like taking in the beauty of the sky and feeling guilty for delighting in it when he knows there's a boy lying dead on the pavement. And yeah, so I think it's an acknowledgement of the, it's a clear expression of mixed feelings. Do you think that guilt is part of his objective? Like to express a sense of his own guilt? Or, or a sense of communicating a sense of feeling guilty, not just an appreciation or failure to appreciation, but to appreciate mm-hmm. the good things, but that there's there's an inherent sense of guilt on the part of those people, mm-hmm. the haves versus the have-nots, or mm-hmm. the people who are blissfully unaware of the mm-hmm. people who are less fortunate. I think we're going to get to your question in this next poem. 
and sections. So definitely come back in the discussion if it's not answered. So this third poem I want to read together. What is the right relationship of security to precarity? This third poem has a response. The doorway of this poem, the title is Shema. In Hebrew, the word Shema means listen, hear, pay attention, focus on this, and respond. Do what has been said. Shema is a coin with listen on one side and do on the other. In ancient Hebrew, there's no separate word for obey. To hear is to obey. Shema. And the Shema is the prayer from Deuteronomy 6 that Jewish people have prayed morning and evening for thousands of years. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These are covenanting words, laying out the condition of blessing for the Hebrew people. And if you read on in Deuteronomy 6, you will hear stark commands not to forget the Lord, not to follow other gods, not to test the Lord. And this, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that things will go well for you. Adam and Eve had one condition for life in the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did not keep this command, and it did not go well for them. They were exiled from Eden and barred from returning by winged creatures wielding flaming swords. When Primo Levi writes this poem, Shema, he is rooting this poem and these words the speaker's voice in the Jewish prophetic tradition. In Deuteronomy, Moses is the speaker addressing Israel. Levi was himself Italian and Jewish, and he was a Holocaust survivor. All right. Wyman asks, what is the right relationship of security to precarity? Here, Levy addresses you who live secure, which I take to mean, for starters, me. Shema. You who live secure in your warm houses, who return at evening to find hot food and friendly faces. 
consider whether this is a man who labors in the mud, who knows no peace, who fights for a crust of bread, who dies at a yes or a no. Consider whether this is a woman without hair or name, with no more strength to remember, eyes empty and womb cold as a frog in winter. Consider that this has been. I commend these words to you. Engrave them on your hearts. When you are in your house, when you walk on your way, when you go to bed, when you rise, repeat them to your children. Or may your house crumble. Disease render you powerless. Your offspring avert their faces from you. So the speaker that we find in this poem has a a quality of the prophetic. In this case, I think we can safely say this is Levy himself, a Holocaust survivor, speaking the truth about reality to the rest of us. And as is true in the prophetic tradition, There's also something of the voice of God here. There is a call here, I think, to face and remember and reckon with the obscenity of human suffering. Wyman notes, the Shema in this poem is an anti-prayer, less a pledge of faith than a promise to haunt. It asks demands, really, that certain forms of human suffering be so inscribed on the hearts of those who have not known them that there be no oblivion powerful enough to erase the fact of their having been. The final lines are indeed a pronouncement of a curse. May your house crumble. Disease render you powerless. Your offspring avert their eyes from you. May you be exiled from place, from your body, from family. May you have no home. If you do not remember this. So what are we invited to talk about well for starters we're told to listen Shema and then perhaps we might be moved to pray in the tradition of the Psalms which use the word Shema so often addressing God himself Lord Shema my voice when I cry out Have mercy on me and answer me. What hope of home does this poem leave us with? In a very immediate way, it 
urges us to remember, as Wyman puts it, the circle of responsibility is larger than the circle of guilt. He goes on. The circle of responsibility includes, even for the man or woman sitting outside sipping gin, Auschwitz, and the transatlantic slave trade, and the next Texas-sized mass of ice lopped off the Arctic. We are attuned to, mingled with, even dependent on forms of existence that seem alien to us. We owe a debt to deaths we never know. This doesn't mean we need to brood over human misery like some backyard flagellant. Peace is not something for which you need forgiveness unless it's tainted with pure forgetfulness. The cold morphine of mine. But should you find a certain defensiveness creeping in, should you find yourself wondering what a strangled black man or a drowned migrant have to do with you, then it's time to say the Shema. And I would add, and it is time to remember that the homemaking of God is not finished. When God created, he made a home for humans, perfectly tuned to all that is needed for human life to flourish. And this flowed from, and it included his presence. This was the place where God walked with humans in the cool of the day. And the whole redemptive history of the Bible tells this story of having had a home, losing that home, and then at profound personal cost to God, having both the way home and the means to get there gifted to us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The one who entered exile and descended to its very depths, knowing like none of us need to know the meaning of forsakenness. And consider afresh these words of Jesus to his friends on the night he was betrayed and went to his death. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way I'm going. And maybe like Thomas, we say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And later in that Last Supper, Jesus continues and he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. Whoever loves me will keep my word. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. This is the promise of shalom, comprehensive peace, not merely an absence of conflict, but the restoration of all that is broken, peace that is a presence. Can we be at home in the shadow of the fall? Only in part. For now, our longings for home must give birth to hope. And this hope must strengthen us to square our shoulders to all of the unhominess in this world. To refuse all false hopes and to proclaim in small and in large ways words of true hope. I want to close with words of Wendell Berry's because he models both of these. First, a lament of false hopes. And if you know anything about Wendell Berry, you know that if ever there was a person now alive, breathing today, who, who could say that a place was his home, it's got to be this guy. <laughs> And yet he writes this, I am forced against all my hopes and inclinations to regard the history of my people here as the progress of the doom of what I value most in the world, the life and health of the earth, the peacefulness of human communities and households. And so here, in the place I love more than any other, and where I have chosen among all other places to live my life, I am more painfully divided within myself than I could be in any other place. And finally, a proclamation of true hope for the end of exile and of home. There is a day when the road neither comes nor goes, and the way is not a way, but a place. That is where I love to turn it over to you for thoughts and responses further questions
to me in a, in a time of peace that with that repeating of the refrain, it is a peaceful country, it is a peaceful country, and the implied kind of, as you put it, like, is it? Um, it just stands out to me that that third time where it says, after what he has said has to be true of this hard work and disappointment, this is a time of peace. And mm. that makes, as you're talking about Sabbath, makes me think of Abraham Heschel mm. and talking about how space and place is the domain of man, but time is the domain of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that observation, especially the the that third uh, yeah, the move from it is a peaceful country to it is a time of peace. Yeah. Hmm. I think one thing we need to recognize as part of the fall is I think in our attempt to think about things and to keep control of them in our minds, we tend to simplify things. We tend to label things and uh, put them in boxes. And life is so much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And so that question, you know, about is it a peaceful country? Well, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And and allowing yourself to get into the complexity of that, I mean, I think that's part of what the poem accomplishes and, mm-hmm. and what I think we need to challenge ourselves with all the time yeah. is in what ways am I oversimplifying something in what ways am I oversimplifying people by yeah. labels and and fight against that because and I wonder when we get to heaven I you know sin affects everything and it probably affects our capacity and our intelligence and our ability to think bigger thoughts than Surely, we're totally yeah. thinking, but mm-hmm. but I think that we need to fight against the oversimplification because because mm-hmm. it's interesting, even in this poem, like I was thinking about Paul talking about the fact that he's learned to be content in all circumstances, mm-hmm. having plenty as well as wanting, mm-hmm. which means there is a way to have a reasonable degree of contentment mm-hmm. with having mm-hmm. plenty. Mm-hmm. And not have a false guilt for being responsible for things that are beyond your control. So somehow there's a godly way to do that. Yeah. But it is complex and it is a struggle. But I think our tendency is to want to oversimplify because it just makes us manage life easier when we're going out and buying tomatoes and having to make <laughs> the yeah. salad and do all the other daily routines of life. Yeah. 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 Agreed. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. other thoughts or questions you're welcome to venture beyond sort of the what what was shared here but is still in that um, bigger theme of home and what does it mean to be at home yeah, other or other observations about the poems. I always find reading poems uh, with a group to be fruitful because inevitably 
that makes it sound bad. I don't mean it that <laughs> wonderfully. Uh, we just notice different things and hearing what others notice enriches yeah, our reading. Yeah, Peter. Um, in, in the Shema, mm-hmm. consider whether this is a man, consider whether this is a woman, consider that this has been. When's the this? So this poem was at the, uh, it's the opening poem for his memoir on surviving the Holocaust. So uh, it's, it's the, I think it's the dehumanization of all, all of the people, all of the Jews and others who were um, system, systematically exterminated. And it was rationalized because they weren't, it wasn't, this wasn't a man, this wasn't a woman. There was, their humanity was denied. So, in, in a sense, the poet uh, Primo is like pointing us to someone. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's pointing us to the image of of a person, a man, okay. laboring in the mud, knowing no peace, fighting for a crust of bread one who dies of a yes or no. Um, yeah. I mean, my mind went quickly to images. I mean, that I remember first encountering images of people in concentration camps as you know, probably an 11 or 12-year-old and just, yeah, I think having the response of like, like how <laughs> to see a human so... Dehumanized, like literally not looking like a recognizable human anymore. I, I ask because that this, for for a reader not having some of this context, mm-hmm. just might wonder: you know, is he expecting us to provide an image, or um, mm-hmm. or, or, or or is this? Does this have an antecedent in the poem itself? That's kind of what I was looking mm-hmm. for. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it doesn't seem to be there. It seems to be somewhere else. Yeah. Yes, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think just in terms of navigating an anthology, um, it's a, a total mishmash of authors and um, yeah, titles and all that. Like, for me, the next step is always then look up the author, gain more of their story, see if that can weigh in, look into other works they've written. But there is something, you know, to <laughs> the Holocaust isn't the only instance of profound dehumanizing of humans um, in world history. So this poem has a universal reach, I think, a meaningfulness that definitely is grounded when you know this is the introduction to a book, a memoir, on surviving the Holocaust, but it can stand 
apart from that too, I think. Yeah, Joshua. I'm just curious, because um, there's, there's a number of lines in Ecclesiastes that just consider consider what hmm. has been will be again and stuff hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I just hmm. wonder, because you know, I commend these words to you, but then engrave them on your heart, and you're like, these are all, like a lot of these, I don't know about your house crumbling or disease rendering you powerless, mm-hmm. but I think the rest of the lines are all from the, the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I wonder mm-hmm. if consider that this has been, this also... Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't even mm-hmm. think about that until mm-hmm. Peter no, mm-hmm. brought it up, but just a thought. Yeah. Knowing a little bit about the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So you said at the beginning, like, imagine that the author is not hostile, but, host- like, but is welcoming you. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to do that in the first two points. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the, the second one, the first one's the easiest. Mm-hmm. How do we read the Shema as a poem of hospitality? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good and fair question. And it's definitely sort of trying out that approach to see how it would work um, and I think it has its limits I think this is I think this is a poem of confrontation but as maybe some of you have discovered life in community life in family navigating relationships <laughs> fruitfully requires some significant confrontation and so yeah I don't think that hospitality is only warm fuzzies. Um, And I think if we limit it to that, we're going to have a pretty shallow experience of encounter with other people. So I I think think this is like the most challenging kind of welcome to receive. But um, yeah, if you've ever had an experience of someone saying really hard, true words that invite you to to be different <laughs> to like do something different i think that's that that's actually a pretty radical invitation to receive like to try to receive that it's not easy shallow answer mm. <laughs> I that. welcome yeah dick yeah i i see the two as quite similar this the shema and the time of peace, they're both mm-hmm. looking at us the way we can just immerse ourselves in the peacefulness and the regularity of life, the predictability of life, and the warm places to be, and the mm-hmm. coming home to this friendly friendly faces and so on. And you say, both of them are saying, listen. Yeah. And the first one, you know, uh, it's not me that was shot by the police. It's not my son that was lying there either. Yeah. It, it happens. But I still, in a world, I still am, live an ordinary life in a world where that stuff happens. Yeah. This is where the shadow of the fall is there. Mm-hmm. And they're both warning against obliterating the shadow of the fall that is mm-hmm. over and around us. Mm-hmm. And, and here, I think, I, I feel the shame is very self-contained. If, you, if we 
do him the favor of believing what he says about consider that this is a man who labors and so on. Mm-hmm. He's seen it. Mm-hmm. He's seen it. We, mm-hmm. I think we're mm-hmm. meant to take him uh, at, his, at his word. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and what he's telling us is not go out and live some sort of impossibly difficult life, but consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Consider. Mm-hmm. Consider. Three times at least. And then I commend you and then repeat them to your children. It's, it's don't forget this. This yeah. is part of this world you're living in, yeah. and don't just don't think that your little warm house is is the whole story. Yeah. So I think it's profoundly a prophetic warning, yeah. but yeah. to help us, yeah. wake yeah. up and smell the coffee. Yeah. And this is this is what uh, this is the world we're in because you maybe the, the kid that's shot by the policeman. Is yeah. There reason that you yeah. 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 We'll have that happen to us. Yeah. Well, just think of all yeah. the refugees that are... Exactly. I'm like, this is... <laughs> on, the, on the road today that weren't yeah. on the road th- 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 two weeks Three ago. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, this is why I think those lines, even from the news article yesterday, just hit me yes. so hard. I'm like, yeah. a few weeks ago, the city had a promising future. Yeah. Yeah, Ben. I just think, that it, I think it, I mean, similar to like the um, sort of blessings and curses... Mm-hmm in the scripture very often if mm-hmm. you do this you'll be blessed if you do not mm-hmm. um, it's real it's not just a curse it's it's a it's a it's a warning yeah that, that your house I mean in a sense it, it's it's very yeah it's like uh, that your house might not crumble mm-hmm. that you might like, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, that you, or, that you, or that your hope wouldn't be so grounded in your comfort that, that if it does crumble your your life is over. You know? um, yeah. I I think that when I heard you talk about the hospitality of a poem at first, I, I heard more and maybe this is an aspect of it, I don't know. I what I understood that to mean was not so much that the poem itself should make you feel at home, but that it welcomes you in in the sense that it engages you yeah. to come and mm-hmm. puzzle. Yeah. yeah. This out yeah. And figure out what it's you're, about. You're the stranger like, here. You're, you're, you're the stranger, and because, <laughs> yeah. of, because uh-huh. of home is dense and sometimes ambiguous and rich, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not propaganda. It doesn't tell you what to mm-hmm. think. It welcomes you in. It says, yeah. you know, dive in here. Yeah. That that's part of the hospitality for me. Yeah. Does it doesn't mean that the content you end up encountering makes you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might be right. just the opposite. Right. Um, Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Also, time, like it's a part of hospitality. You know, like, and we have that living here. We live with people for a long time. So when it comes to confrontation, like, there's time that you need to sit with the poem, and the poem needs to sit with you. You don't know the author, and the author doesn't know you. So I think there, there's time to puzzle over that, which I think is part of what you're saying. Is you need to kind of let it sift, and you need to spend time with it. Um, and I think also you need to enter with an understanding of yourself that's honest um, because the poem doesn't know you mm-hmm. um, and can't tell you who you are, but you have to come in with a, a certain degree of security and openness. Um, and so I think that that requires time with yourself and time with the poem because it's a little one-sided, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. the fact that a poem is is the invitation itself. Mm-hmm. If someone writes something down, unless they keep it to themselves, as soon as they put it out there, mm-hmm. there's an invitation by the author to read this and consider this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real hospitality. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm inviting you, I'm welcoming mm-hmm. you, I'm, I'm, 
I'm hoping that you're going to read what I write mm -hmm. and consider it, even if the contents are challenging. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I think just the fact that a poem is means that someone has put something out there for public consumption yeah. to consider. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Hmm. Can you put it back on the, the quote slide about forgiveness? You don't need forgiveness. The Wyman quote. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, peace is not peace. something mm -hmm. which you need forgiveness. Yeah, I just wanted to see it again. Yeah. Yeah. This, too, I, this is what I think answers your earlier question, you know, that the, the circle of responsibility is larger than the circle of guilt. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's maybe too easy to get into a reactive mode, like, I, didn't do, I wasn't directly involved, I'm not guilty, mm -hmm. and we need this other, <laughs> this other circle to step into and be like, okay, maybe I'm not guilty, but I'm responsible, and yeah. It's, I was thinking in terms of your, your title, when we think of, you know, considering home in the shadow of the fall, mm -hmm. that, that, that that can also be expanded <coughs> to include whatever it is, to include not only the overcast atmosphere of sin that touches everything, mm -hmm. but also the post-fall reality that this is not our home. And that we've been driven out of the garden, and that anything and everything good in this world is a shadow of the true and complete goodness, truth, and beauty that exists as a reality in heaven. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful to not despair with what we see around us, but we also have to be careful not to grasp things, which I think some of these poems were getting at. Mm -hmm. The good things in this life are good, and God has put them there as blessings for us, but not for us to make them ultimate things, mm -hmm. but to point to the ultimate thing. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think that if we understand that, it prevents us from investing too much of our identity and too much of ourselves in the blessings that we do experience if, if we are those people. Um, but also to understand that, you know, this, this, the shadow of sin. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the shadow can go both directions, and it's, mm -hmm. I think... Trying to sort all this stuff out has a lot to do with mm -hmm. not grasping the blessings mm -hmm. as well as understanding mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. sin and the absolute mm -hmm. horror that it mm -hmm. can it can manifest itself here. Mm -hmm. Which is maybe yeah what is so effective about the Kaminsky poem and the Shema mm -hmm. poem to Dick's point of yeah just this reminder of like. This can change overnight for you, you know, like our illusion of security. Se yeah. Security is an illusion. Mm -hmm. And if we are putting our hope and our trust in that or assuming it, um, we're deluded. And at the least, it can lead to neglect and not considering yeah. the less fortunate. Yeah. But it can also lead to despair, mm -hmm. um, you know, because, you know, one of the things that struck me too is that because we're made in God's image, we have we have a sense of the way things ought to be, mm -hmm. and that's really powerful in us. And and we want to see that. And we, if we're not careful, we can have an expectation of that in this life, 
that the mm-hmm. Bible says because we live in a broken world, we're not going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have that sense of the way things ought to be. And so it can lead to expectations that can be so high that it leads to discontent and anger and resentment and frustration mm-hmm. as opposed to understanding blessings for what they really are, which leads us to contentment and appreciation and thankfulness, mm-hmm. and and uh, which just is revolutionary in, in terms of the way that we mm-hmm. consider life and consider mm-hmm. our circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our... <laughs> and to to not um, also consider the fact that our ideals are also in the shadow of the fall. So uh, we can labor very hard for ideals that... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, Wyman has a really, I think, a poignant um, comment to that end as well about just... um, Oh, yeah, he says this... um, Home may be hard to define, but it is primarily, blessedly, relentlessly physical. In fact, any idea of home that is not first physical is not only doomed, it is itself both engine and agent of that doom. And this, it, it just makes me think of what um, Bonhoeffer says about community, like the greatest enemy of a community is the idealized community mm-hmm. and that like our ideals about home can be the very thing that undermines our home yeah. <laughs> or the yeah. making the making of home and yeah mm. yeah Melissa um, I think just kind of piecing together kind of listening to all the different poems and, and the idea of home makes me think about Proximity being important, and how you know my experience of the last two years uh, as a healthcare provider is very different than my husband's experience of the last two years as like a person who puts courses online, mm-hmm. which is very different from my neighbor's experience, um, you know, who lost a loved one, and like we can all live on the same street. And have a lot of intersecting circles of what home is to us. Yeah. And yet, even in our own house, it can feel different. Yeah. Uh, and so we feel like there's a there's a lesson to be learned if we are really willing to see what home is for someone else. Yeah. And how that's different than home is for them. Yeah. 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 And and just the, the kind of the prerequisite curiosity yeah. that is required for the deeper connection um, across those differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ben? I'm going to go back to the um, In a Time of Peace poem, which, which um, near the end, he says, all of us still have to do the hard work of dentist appointments of remembering to make a summer salad, basil tomatoes, and enjoy tomatoes. And also, I think that's, that's just a... Um, to me, it's kind of like playing out what he's talking about there. Peace is not something you, uh, for which we need forgiveness unless it's tainted with pure forgetfulness. There's something mm-hmm. 
Of course, I, I, re I read that line the first time. The first time you read it, uh, still have to do the hard work. I, I hear it's pure irony. Mm -hmm. the, the, the hard work, mm -hmm. as if it's just, as if he's just saying, all of you comfortable mm -hmm. suburban people fussing about your your errands, right? Like get out of your head, you know? yeah. yeah. Um, and. But, that, but I don't think that's what it is. It's, nope. it's not I know. Quite, it's not, yeah. it, like, there's a hint of that there. Yeah. Like hard work. Yeah. But, it's, but it's also like, if it's not you lying on the pavement or not your son lying on the pavement, these things do feel momentous and hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's okay. Like, mm -hmm. as, lo as long as you don't forget, like, <laughs> as long as you have the Shema. Yeah. As long as yeah. you don't forget. Yeah. I don't know. Somehow, somehow yeah. it's... Um, what I hear is yeah. from this, like, and remembering to make this up. Maybe this is just me revealing my. Uh, nope, don't. Yeah, my, my, uh, the way our house works. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but just like he's this guy has promised to make a salad to his wife because friends are coming over, and like, you gotta remember that. Otherwise, I am toast. <laughs> so I gotta remember that. You know, that's the. That's the for, for many people, and maybe it's just because, mm -hmm. maybe it's just people who are sheltered and haven't experienced the brutality, you know, mm -hmm. those are the dramas of the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what feels mm -hmm. big, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, what, I, just, I, I love play? that part of the poem because yeah. it's so, it's so yeah. ambiguous. Yeah. 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 I, also, I also think that for the less who find things like going to the dentist <laughs> and making appointments, so life-taking. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there's comfort in this. Yeah. Like, this shouldn't be. There mm -hmm. is a reminder that this should not be the way the world is. There is a shadow of the fall mm -hmm. in making appointments to go to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yep. Yeah. And that why mm -hmm. at the end of the busy day you just want to fall into bed and cry. Mm -hmm. Like, the world should not be this way. There's a longing for rightness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like one day all rights are all will be made well. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I also read this. My first reading was like, whew, searing irony. Yeah. And then the more I sat with it, I'm like, no, it's more challenging than yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, that... Like, it's that little phrase, it is a joy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, it's, um, it's, it's a, oh, what's the right word? It's like a bastion against further encroachment of the shadow of the fall. Like, I will make this salad. I will know? remember the salt. And, yeah, and don't forget the salt. Like, you will not steal this joy from me. <laughs> and, you know, like, it's, it's, it's to concede, it's to concede to the shadow. I'm like, oh, forget the salad. Who cares anyway? You know? Yeah, Joshua. Yeah, no, this is a, um, in the in the love making poem after making love we get yeah come on people why aren't you yeah, talking yeah. about that poem <laughs> but no there's this moment that's just I mean it's such a funny poem mm -hmm. uh, I mean even like you know he's wearing baseball pajamas and 
you know, reasonably sober Irishman. <laughs> but this line is so, I mean, we've, ta- we've talked about how, you know, there's shadow of the fall over making appointments, which is totally true. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, yeah, sort of even kind of what um, uh, Blair was talking a little bit about, like, but this line about the satisfaction at being this very child. There's such a, yeah. you know, it's a moment. It's yeah. a moment of, yeah. of holiness. Yep. That, and yep. he's oblivious to what he's disrupted. <laughs> right. Uh, and what he's, you know, but they still find delight in it in the moment. Yeah. And it's just such a, just, yeah, his face gleaming. I can think of moments, yeah, where our own kids are... It's not self-satisfaction, it's not pride, but it is just a sense of, yeah, things are, for this very brief moment, all is well. Everything is holy. All is well. Right now, all is well. I don't know, I just, it's it's just, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, not to, yeah, anyway, I just think it's such a beautiful picture, that line is such a beautiful picture of of homies, and it's just sort of also sweet to hear the noises of uh, uh, a littler one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, Peter. Uh, I, I think I, I resolved my problem with the Shema. Oh, good. One of those really fine points, but. Uh, Consider whether this is a man, comma. If I put a colon there, it, it, the, the meaning mm-hmm. becomes, I think for me, a little bit more transparent. Mm-hmm. When I put a colon after, consider whether this is a woman. Mm-hmm. Asking, like, it, can, is this how we define a man? Is this how we define a woman? And, uh, and with the comma there, I, it, it, it just... It, it seems to be more ambiguous, mm. and so by, by putting in like, mm-hmm. a full stop, mm-hmm. uh, it allowed me to kind of mm-hmm. perhaps see a little bit more clearly mm-hmm. what the author is, is yeah. trying, trying to get. Okay, I, I see your point, but then there would be four colons in this poem, which might take the punch away from the ones that. Or like where it already is. Right, right. So, so I'm mm-hmm. just wondering whether mm-hmm. the poet himself mm-hmm. m- might have been kind of going back and forth with punctuation placement. And poets think about that stuff. That's yeah, for sure. <laughs> True. Yep. Mm-hmm. As someone who doesn't know much about poetry, mm-hmm. but knows a lot about music lyrics, um, most musicians talk about the fact that they they attempt to be ambiguous in their lyrics and frequently won't give what their original intent was because they want people to divine their own understanding from it. Poets tend to think that way, or are they, most of them, trying to communicate a particular... Because most of these poems seem to be wanting to convey a very particular idea or concepts and... In your experience, is, is that generally the way it is with poets? Is that a big difference between music lyric writers and and poets? I, I think there's a lot of space for ambiguity in 
poetry and in the arts generally. Um, I think that's actually part of the hospitable quality of the arts. <laughs> it's like it leaves the little space for the, the appreciator to come in and be involved. Um, I think it's more a question of like, am I being ambiguous about the, the like the things worth being ambiguous about? Like there's am, there's ambiguity that is actually laziness. Like you know, we're like a, a writer, an artist, like hasn't done about, the so hard work, yeah. yeah, of really figuring out what they think about yeah. <laughs> about it. Um, Versus so, the ambiguity that may challenge someone even further. Yeah. To have to think harder. Yeah. Or, or I think like, like the ambiguity that we've been unpacking in the in the time of peace. We're like, is this irony? Mm-hmm. Is this sincerity? Is this mm-hmm. both? Is this both? Mm-hmm. What is it like? That that's a type of ambiguity at at work for sure in that poem. Hmm. Any other questions or thoughts, topic, reason? Thank you all for your involvement this evening. Yeah.